in the New Deal, right? So this is a time when uh, a quarter of the population is out of work. The people are waiting in lines for thin soup and moldy bread and uh, you know other low quality low quality food because they have nothing else to eat. The federal government of the United States ordered the destruction of food. All right, so Robert Wright, it's so nice to have you back here again. It's been a while since we've done one of these, and uh, I'm really excited because you are in the process of writing this book on the New Deal, of which it is the 90th anniversary this year. And so what you've been finding in your research is that there are many parallels that can be drawn between what happened under the New Deal regime and what's happening now. And, you know, the old adage, history doesn't repeat, but it sure does rhyme, seems to be true here. And so what I'd like to do with you is kind of go through what you've identified as 10 steps um, in something that you call two great resets, question mark. So the first great reset being between 1929 and 1945, and the second great reset being between 2020 and 2030. So I think it's going to be really exciting to talk about it. Um, so yeah, so let's start with maybe what happened with the New Deal, just like a broader picture of the New Deal. What was that like and how did it change the infrastructure of America and of the world? So uh, the, the New Deal was a period of very rapid change in the relationship between uh, the federal government and individuals in America. Before the uh, New Deal, um, you know, most government, when people thought of government, they thought of their local government or maybe by that stage, the state government. But during the New Deal, the federal government really comes to the fore and, and, and begins to directly act on uh, individual Americans in, uh, in, in a number of, of profound uh, ways. So uh, we, we go basically from a classical liberal uh, sort of society where if there was a problem, people would say, well, what can I do to get with my neighbors in order to you know, uh, uh, ameliorate this this issue. Um, after the New Deal, um, Americans start to say, "What can Washington do uh, to to solve this this problem?" Um, so yes. it was, uh, it, you know, some some people at the time, like um, Garrett Garrett, uh, a, a, a journalist who was critical of the New Deal, um, basically said that uh, it, it was a revolution. It was bloodless, um, but it was a sort of coup. It's where the federal government took over uh, the, the reins of government from state and local governments and um, uh, essentially began uh, implementing policies that uh, you know, would, would make the, the founders um, lament the passing of the republic, basically. Uh, just to, uh, is it sort of the... the the lowest point of this, or the highest point, if you're a fan of the federal government, was a 1942 Supreme Court um, decision uh, called Wickard, where the Supreme Court said that the federal government had the power to prevent a farmer from growing crops that were going to be used for his personal consumption only. Yeah, that there's huge implications to that, right? Like and and we often think in terms of how things are today kind of being normal, but what you're saying is that back then people had a lot more liberty. Like you didn't need the government's permission to have cows or have chickens uh to provide food for your own family, right? Right. And in fact, one one way that um people talk about the sea change is that before the new deal uh, there was a presumption of liberty. Americans could do what they wanted, and the government had to prove that uh, there was a, a, a public-interested reason for preventing you from engaging in that activity. After the New Deal, it became the burden of citizens to, to prove that they had a right to do something, like in the case of Wickard, to grow whatever crops and whatever amounts they, they wanted. 
So it was very clearly a very major change. Um, you know, FDR becomes president in 1933, but actually some of these changes began under the Hoover uh, administration. Um, so that's why I date it. Um, and also traditional New Deal historians end at about 1938 when uh, the, the second New Deal, as it's called, uh, sort of ran out of, uh, ran out of steam. Uh, but I put World War II in there because it's the same president and he's following the same agenda, uh, as we'll see. And that agenda right. is more and more power for him and for the federal government and less and less liberty for individual Americans. And was this happening, Robert, because this was kind of a trend of the times, like this was what was going on in Europe as well. It was uh, no longer popular to have uh, individual liberty. It was becoming more uh, that the individual should sacrifice themselves in some ways to whatever the state apparatus wanted to do. That That's right. And I devote an entire chapter in the book to talking about the progressive movement, which was a little bit uh, earlier in the in the 20th century and uh, reached its peak during the Great War, World War One, uh, when Woodrow Wilson was president. And that's when we get the um, the national um, uh, income tax and the Federal Reserve is formed. And of course, uh, during the Great War, there were all kinds of uh, wartime restrictions put in place. And the progressives really picked up on that. Uh, a lot of um, progressives, uh, you know, at the, at the leadership level, the policy level, were trained in European universities uh, because we didn't have PhD granting universities yet, right? So Americans went to Europe and were educated and then came back and formed their own uh, PhD programming uh, PhD programs, uh, you know, and eventually we, we would be number one, but for a long time, the place to go was Germany. That's where ah. most historians and economists were, were trained from, from that progressive, uh, era. And they learned, you know, Bismarckian strong central state, uh, sort of, uh, sort of theories and, and ways of thinking and, and brought it back, uh, to the United States. Um, Harvard, Yale, uh, the University of Wisconsin, uh, were big centers for this, uh, progressive, uh, intellectual milieu. Oh, that's, that's really interesting. I was reading The Road to Serfdom. And uh, Frederick von Hayek, he talks about that, how actually uh, the German academics were talking about kind of redefining liberty around that time. And they were really espousing kind of ideas of socialism, you know, which later turned into fascism. And so that was kind of a trend. And I, and I didn't actually know how those ideas were transported to America. So it was really through the university, how people started to think about things, and then that kind of spread into policy. We kind of look at the system that's around us, and you're explaining that in your book, I guess, the, archi the architecture for how things are now was kind of laid out during that period around, you know, the 1930s and 1940s. So can we maybe go into some of your specifics about that? You have 10 points that you've brought up here. Um, and so you show how in each of the 10 points, there's a parallel between what happened then and what happened now. And the first point being state control of mass media. So newspapers, movies, radio, theater, to vilify critics of administration policies as anti-democratic extremists. So you're saying that this happened then and this happened now. So what right. are some examples of that then and what are some examples in the modern day? Well, the, the modern days is the Twitter files, right? Uh, where the government is is censoring um, speech on social media platforms, uh, we know Twitter for sure because of the the ownership change there. But we also suspect on Facebook and 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 all the other major uh, platforms. Uh, today, you know, you're you're vilified as this uh, anti democratic extremist if you're pro Putin or not sufficiently pro Ukraine, right? And then you're pro Putin, pro Putin and uh, and you're a bad guy, uh, or you're labeled a, uh, a white, a white supremacist. Um, 
which harkens back to the Second World War when, uh, you, you know, you would be labeled pro, you know, pro-Hitler, uh, pro, pro-Nazi, unless you towed the administration uh, line and, uh, you know, basically parroted what the, what the administration uh, said. Uh, or you were labeled um, an economic royalist, uh, which was, you know, sort of the white supremacist uh, term. Uh, FDR had to be careful about uh, using white supremacist term too much because a lot of his support came from Southern Democrats who, of course, were bona fide white supremacists. Uh, he put a um, member of the Ku Klux Klan on the Supreme Court, a uh, fellow by the name of Hugo Black uh, from Alabama, was FDR's first pick for for the, the the Supreme the Supreme Court as soon as an opening uh, you know came came up. Uh, so back then you know newspapers were huge. Uh, there were you know in in big cities like New York had like four or five functioning dailies. <laughs> it was just uh, it was uh, you know very much a, a, a sort of newspaper print uh, culture. So uh, there were folks who FDR went after because they opposed his uh, his administration, uh, like Robert McCormick at the Chicago Tribune, which was uh, very much against um, the administration. So when World War II hits and there's paper rationing, guess whose paper ration gets cut? Mm. Chicago Tribune, right? Uh, 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 Garrett Garrett. Uh, who I mentioned earlier, who was staunchly um, anti-New Deal. Um, when the war comes around, uh, he's immediately relieved of his post at the Saturday Evening Post, which was a major, uh, of course, print uh, print source back back then. Um, so uh, movies uh, as well. Um, the administration is using public funds to create basically propaganda in favor of the uh, of the administration. Uh, they use those same funds for theater uh, to create plays that uh, that vilified uh, the administration's opponents and upheld uh, New Dealers like Harry Hopkins and. Harold Ickes and and um, Henry Morgenthau and 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 of course the president himself. Uh, radio was interesting in many ways. Radio was also huge back then. This is uh, pre pre television. Everyone listened to their radios. So uh, they decreased the time that it took to to, uh, to apply for licenses for the spectrum. Uh, you know your your radio station number basically. That's the way things used to work with um, AM and FM. You had to get a license to have a certain slice of that spectrum so that you could use it and only you could use it. Uh, well, they reduced that licensing time down to like six months. So if any radio station put any anti-New Deal stuff on, their license could not be renewed when the six months were up. And there's wow. instances where where this was applied. Um, there was uh, FDR decided that uh, rather than um, using uh, private contractors to um, to run the U.S. airmail system, that he was going to use U.S. Army pilots. So this was a way of um, you know uh, a, a budget constraint. Right, and so wasting all this money on these private contractors, he's going to kill two birds with one stone, and give army pilots uh, training while simultaneously, you know, delivering the mails. And he was told that this was a very bad idea; that army air force pilots were were not up to the were not up to the task, and it's a very different sort of flying, and so on and so forth. And FDR said, "No, no, 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 we're going to do this." Uh, there were like six crashes with deaths and destruction of mail in the first week of this policy uh, implementation. So a World War One ace says, I'm going on the radio and exposing this. And uh, FDR shut him down by making a phone call to the uh, radio station and threatening their license if they let this fellow speak out. Outrageous. And so these critics, so these critics of the New Deal, 
they were treated in the same way as now. So like FDR was progressive. And so if you were um, an entrepreneur or a free marketeer or something like that, or part of the old right, you would be considered a critic. And then they would do the same kind of tactics as now where they would say you were pro-Hitler because Hitler was considered right wing. Is that Am I understanding uh, yeah, that correctly? Yeah, that's yeah, that's that's part of it. Um, uh, you know, they uh, anyone they didn't like, basically, they would throw these labels on. Um, they didn't like throwing around the fascist word too much because many New Dealers were actually on record as being pro Mussolini. <laughs> so it was a little, you know, a little a little tricky there, and that's tricky. why. You know, yeah, if you were pro Hitler, you were back. If you were pro Mussolini, that's fine. Uh, I guess because Mussolini just invaded African countries and not, uh, you know, not European ones or what have you. But um, yeah, and, and uh, you were an economic royalist if you believed in you know crazy things like property rights. You know, you're just an economic royalist. It's supposed to make you, you know, seem like a like a bad person because you're a royalist, right? You believe in royalty. And um, would that be people who were opposed to having their gold confiscated? Because I know that FDR <laughs> did that, right? <laughs> yeah, FDR did that. Yep, yep, yep. So yeah, it would, it would include uh, include those, the, those, those sorts of uh, folks. Uh, so today we also see a, a big um, augmentation of state surveillance and law enforcement, right? With the uh, National Security Administration, the CIA, the Patriot Act, uh, which they've juiced up, the J-5, um, uh, you know, um, uh, committee. Well, back in the start of the Second World War, well, in the New Deal, there was a big increase in the FBI. This was uh, J. Edgar Hoover, who was mm -hmm. not necessarily a big fan of Roosevelt. He was a big fan of J. Edgar Hoover, though. And so he wanted to please the, the boss and did so by, you know, um, harassing and tracking uh, anyone who might be a threat to the administration, um, including the black press. If you were African-American journalist, uh, it, almost certainly Hoover had a file uh, on you. And um, as, as he did many, many, many other uh, other people. Um, our, our, our national security apparatus wasn't all that strong yet by the time World War II gets around. So Roosevelt allows the British to conduct security operations within the United States against people who might, uh, might be in support of Hitler, which was anyone who was against U.S. involvement in the war. Right, right. right. Same so one thing we get now where, oh, you're not 100% behind the administration, you're an enemy, and you need to be tracked and harassed and, and so on and so forth. In both of these resets, I see a division of people by, by class and race and religion. So today, the class stuff we saw with the masks uh, and, you know, tax the rich uh, sort sort of sort of mantras and um, BLM, of course, on race and uh, in in religion. Now we seem to be at the point where it's like atheist versus believer. Yes. yes. Right. So it it doesn't matter if you're a Protestant or a Catholic or even a, a a Muslim. You're all believers, right? And there's something wrong with you. Uh, you should be a uh, should 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 be an atheist. Right, not believe in God uh, at all, and have, uh, or or just have a very sort of bland general spirituality. Um, you know, I guess it's okay to worship Gaia. Uh, yeah, you know, I think I think that might be because if you're a believer, that means that you're anti-science in a way, and like you know, science has kind of become a part of the state dogma, like the science, right? Yes. Right, right, yeah, and uh, you know, churches are, are an alternative source of uh, of authority. Uh, you mm -hmm. might not follow the government if your church says, "Well, what the government's doing is wrong," right? Or yes. if you have a moral compass, uh, especially in a, uh, you know an inner directed uh, one. Um, and uh, but it it seems you know most of us um, 
at this point, have other directed personalities where we feel good about ourselves if other people do, instead of feeling good mm -hmm. about ourselves because uh, uh, the because we're living according to you know some sort of internal compass that we may have gotten from our parents and or uh, you know religious uh, leaders. Yeah, same thing happened back then. I was going to ask. So with religion as well, that was kind of under attack. If you were a believer, was that it, or was it more for other reasons? Uh, well, it was attacks on um, specific religions, especially Catholicism, um, because, uh, you know, it was thought that you would take orders from the Pope instead of from uh, the president. Uh, but um, it, it was more uh, back then to destroy uh, charity, uh, private charity, because private that's charity. the alternative to having FDR, Uncle Sam uh, pay um, uh, people who are unemployed down on their luck, right? Well, where I, were the churches? I, well, they were there, but they were also suppressed. And can we highlight that for a little bit for people, like what that actually looked like back then before the New Deal? Was private charity a big part of how um, society kind of ran well enough? Well, it's it was huge. Uh, I have a book that is still forthcoming, but I'm, I'm told... It, any day now, uh, Liberty Lost will come out. I think we've talked about that in the past, but um, it's where uh, I describe the size and effectiveness of private uh, charity and, uh, and other nonprofit groups in the United States before the Civil War. Absolutely enormous. Over the rest of the 19th century, you start to see uh, more and more local governments and state governments getting involved. Uh, like with the uh, you know the um, the whole whole house movement in Chicago and and all of that the progressives start bringing the the state in but at first at that local and state level um, but of course during the New Deal it's the federal government's job suddenly uh, to supply uh, relief. Um, so is that so, where the welfare state began in a sense during the New Deal? Or was that already uh, the federal welfare in? state? The federal welfare state absolutely started during the during the New Deal. Uh, in terms of race, you know, Jim Crow continues. FDR does not want to do anything against race. He wouldn't even sign an anti-lynching bill because he doesn't want to lose support of Southern conservatives who might bounce to the Republican Party and eventually, you know. 30, 40 years later, do move to the to the Republican uh, Party. Uh, and, uh, you know, th this plays right into the Japanese internment story as well, um, where the Japanese, uh, you know, uh, Japanese Americans in Hawaii and the, the, the West Coast were put in internment camps during the Second uh, World War uh, by the U.S. federal government, uh, by FDR. Uh, it was very easy for them to you know, to, to do that uh, in terms of their, their ideology. Um, they're essentially racist. Uh, they pretended to do things for people of color, but uh, as I show in the book and as others have shown, they absolutely did, did not. Uh, they hurt them uh, at, every, at every turn. And they divided yeah. people by class with this economic royalist um, argument uh, with, um, you know, catch slogans like soak the rich. Uh, where, you know, don't worry about the income tax. We're going to tax the rich, right? But over the course of the New Deal, the common person's getting taxed more and more and more. Um, and, uh, and, but it's the rich, you know, the, we, 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 we got to go after that. They would just pay, the, pay their fair share that we, we wouldn't have to um, raise the raise the taxes on the working man. Uh, so Right. So I remember FDR uh, giving a, I think it was a radio talk about uh, giving your fair share, right? So that's what happened then is that they say, we're going to tax the rich. And a lot of people say, yeah, let's tax the rich. That's going to make us better off. And, and we deserve a bigger part of that pie. They think it's the finite pie. And then when it trickles down to them, because there's not enough money through taxing the rich, or maybe even that it's not just that there's not enough money, but it's that a lot of the, the rich, you know, that people tend to be thinking are going to be taxed are actually kind of 
cozied up with the government and there's a lot of cronyism happening, isn't there? So they just go to kind of take the money out of the the kind of ordinary people. Is that how it went? Two, two things explain the obscene American tax code. Uh, and one is that it's uh, rich people who are connected with the government getting tax breaks. And the other is this progressive mindset that uh, they can they can tweak economic outcomes through the tax code, uh, which was mm. one of the reasons why they pushed so hard for the for the income tax. And uh, it turns out that uh, you know poor poor people can't avoid the the uh, the taxes, can't take advantage of the the, the deductions, um, but rich people rich people can. So um, it's just one of the many ways that the New Deal you know hurt uh, uh, vulnerable people. Uh, as the left uh, likes to say, um, while uh, while well, not really implementing um, fundamental change, and a right. part of the way that they're able to, to to do this is through fear. And what a lot of people fear most of all is not having enough food. Right. Right. And that brings you to your fourth point. So before you go there, I just want to do a little recap. So you have the out of this, these two great resets, what we see these parallels are state control of mass media, augmentation of state surveillance and law enforcement, division of people by class, and then the fourth step, which is disruption of food creation and distribution systems. So we see that happening there and you see that happening now. Right. T today it's via ESG. Uh, or um, uh, environment, social, and, and, and governance. Uh, we, we saw it uh, big time in, in Sri Lanka. There are protests in Holland uh, because it's, uh, it, it's going and, um, you know, it's, it's coming to, to, the, United, to the United States uh, as well. In the New Deal, right? So this is a time when uh, a quarter of the population is out of work. The people are waiting in lines for thin soup and moldy bread and uh, you know other low quality low quality food because they have nothing else to eat. The federal government of the United States ordered the destruction of food. Animals slaughtered and essentially wasted. Um, and crops already in the ground, plowed up and destroyed like they were weeds. How did they do this? They ordered it. <laughs> uh, they gave incentives to farmers to do it. Um, why they did it is because presumably they wanted higher prices for food so that farmers would be able to repay their debts. They wanted to stimulate the economy too. Is that part of it? Uh, no, no. It was it was about no? farmers being able to repay repay their debts. Um, hmm. And so uh, the you know it, for, you, you can hardly blame blame the farmers, though many of them were traumatized by having to to do this uh, because they the government was giving them more money than they were anticipating getting by raising the crops to maturity or the, or the livestock to maturity and selling them in the market, uh, given prices uh, were what they, what they were at the time. Um, so uh, yeah, I can't blame the farm, but it was a, it was a, you know, stupid policy idea uh, that was, um, you know, really, really sort of um, confusing what the main issue was, which was that the money supply had plummeted. So prices went down. So they should have found a way to reflate uh, to get the money supply back up to where it should have been, and then prices would have been restored without destroying anyone's uh, anyone's dinner or, or sustenance. Um, right. But they didn't do that um, partly because they wanted, and this is this is parallel number five. They wanted to introduce a new monetary system. So back then we went from. Uh, being on a, a retail gold standard to a fiat system. So you used to be able to take physical paper currency or your deposits and exchange them for gold or silver at a yes. fixed 
at a fixed rate. Uh, the New Deal not only broke that link to make sure that it was broken, it confiscated all the monetary gold in the country. Um, it wasn't quite like the Grinch, you know, stealing every single little present in Whoville um, because they, they made some exceptions for jewelry and for numismatic coins, coins of, uh, you know, collector's, collector's value. Uh, but th those were really minor exceptions, and th there was no way that the stock of gold left uh, with the public could have supported a continuation of a, you know, like an illicit underground retail gold standard. So they, they effectively right. killed that. But they said, well, we're still on the gold standard, uh, though, a gold exchange standard, because we're still going to allow gold to... Um, flow in and out of the United States, but just in and out of the Federal Reserve, not out of individual uh, accounts. And so why it, was that beneficial for, for the purposes of the New Deal? Like, what was the logic behind that? Well, it, it gave them more monetary policy discretion. So the whole how? idea had a well, because now they're controlling when and how much gold can flow in and out of the, the Federal Reserve. Under the old system, individuals are making that decision. Yeah, I'm going to say. Via send the gold. market. Via the market, yeah. Um, this way, uh, you, you know, your, your monetary policy, as the economists say, is, um, you know, exogenously determined. It's determined by market forces. Uh, by turning to fiat, it uh, gives the power to the, you know, the federal government. Now, with yes. this little wrinkle in the U.S. case that, uh, you know, the, the Federal Reserve is like partly owned by, uh, you know, commercial banks. Uh, and back then it was more decentralized and had less power. Um, but a little bit later on in 1935, the federal government increases the power of the Federal Reserve. And of course, infamously, basically, Trevor, uh, Treasury basically made the Fed its lapdog uh, mm. until the Fed Accords, um, you know, in the nineteen in the nineteen fifties. So the Treasury, i.e., the Treasury Secretary, i.e., an appointee of the President, is the one who uh, is uh, is determining monetary policy. Right. And that was and that was different, right? I mean, that was very different than what was happening before. You know, I think that's important to emphasize is that the the market was in control of, you know, how the economy moved and now here it was like now we're really going to implement monetary policy, right? Like I believe that I read um that now uh, the Federal Reserve had the power to to manage the economy. Is that true? Like that was put into law? Well, to try to manage the economy, yeah. Right, right, um, right, right. Yeah. Okay, it, okay. It, it, they, they call it monetary policy dis discretion, not, you know, not absolute control. But in the second Great Reset, we see talk of creating a central bank digital currency, which would essentially uh, completely turn over control of the economy to the Fed because it could make and destroy money at will, and also the distribution of money at will. And it would also give the federal government lock, stock, and barrel, uh, it, it, assuming that there's no, uh, that no outside uh, illicit currency uh, arises. It would give the Fed complete control over, over taxation as well, because uh, there'd be no way to hide any, any transaction. Anything. Yeah. Right. Uh, so it's the, you know, we, we, it's the next logical step from a fiat, uh, from a fiat system. And of course, I've already argued that I think that, um, while it wouldn't be unconstitutional for the Fed to offer a central bank digital currency as a payment system, because right, it already has a payment system, it could offer an alternative, uh, payment system to make it the sole, uh, legal way of making payments, I think, would be unconstitutional. Uh, and and a payment system, uh, sorry, but what do you mean by that, Robert? Like a payment system for who? Uh, between banks. Okay, okay, I see. So not for private citizens, but for banks. 
Right. Um, okay. And, and it would it would really be pushing it if if they said, well, you know, all private citizens could also only could only use this. That's when I think it crosses the line into being unconstitutional, because all the forms of money discussed in the Constitution are all bearer instruments. So uh, that means there's a, a degree of anonymity built right into the right into the instrument, right? Like a full-bodied gold coin was a bearer instrument. All I needed to do would be to give it to you to satisfy the debt. Then you're the bearer of it, and I no longer am. Same thing with yes. Federal Reserve notes, right? If I owe you a thousand dollars, I can count out a you know ten ten one hundreds and give it to you, and then that payment uh, has been made. But with a retail CBDC, the government would see that I was giving you a thousand dollars, and then would be able to you know inquire why why did you make this payment? Yeah, I mean, I, I think that it's scary to think about what that kind of regime would look like, right? Very scary. Yes. Yep. Um, so again, a parallel between the 1930s with the move to away from gold to, to fiat, and then possibly uh, a, a, a CBDC um, here. But of course, the state has, and this is point six, has um, other ways of um, coercing <laughs> uh, uh, people to achieve state goals. Uh, so we saw that during the pandemic with lockdowns, right? Mask mandates, vaccine mandates, you know, take this shot or you're going to lose your job sort of thing. Uh, with the lockdowns, it was fines if you tried to keep your church or business uh, open. Um, and, uh, you know, the, the, these all were supported by changes in constitutional thought as well. And there's been some talk about um, packing the Supreme Court, as it's called. Uh, in other words, adding a bunch of justices to it so that the uh, administration that is running the Great Reset gets constitutional or legal cover for, uh, for what they're doing. Uh, right. right now, the Biden administration is not getting much support from the, from the Supreme Court. So it has been talking about ways of adding justices so that Biden can appoint them. And uh, FDR threatened the same thing. Um, after some of his uh, New Deal programs were, were struck down, uh, especially uh, the, Blue, the Blue Eagle, as it's sometimes uh, called, but the uh, National Industrial Recovery Act, which was uh, an attempt to cartelize and, and socialize U.S. Uh, industry, uh, the manufacturing uh, uh, sector uh, and the retail, the retail sector. So the idea was that um, if your business didn't follow certain codes, uh, like with a minimum wage uh, and uh, price, what you would sell your wares uh, for, uh, you you would get a blue eagle if you follow those codes, uh, an emblem that you could stick on your advertising and you could put in your window. And then all the good citizens would, of course, go to your bakery, say, instead of the bakery down the road that didn't display the Blue Eagle because it wasn't allowed to because it didn't follow the codes, right? Um, it was so a symbol this, of compliance. Yeah, symbol of compliance, absolutely. And uh, it, it, um, it the, the government really crack down on people who use the blue emblem when they weren't supposed to um, or who took the blue emblem, you know, had signed the pledge for the code, but then started to break it. So there was an instance, for example, where they threw a, a guy in jail because he was selling bread for nine cents instead of the 10 cents that it said in the code. Right now, this is during the depression again, right? So you would think that lower prices for bread would be good because more people could afford to buy a loaf of bread. No, 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 no. Not if you want to augment the power of the government, right? You want that person who can't pay the ten cents for the loaf of bread to go to the bread line and get their hand out from the uh, from the government. Um, and also, you want to keep those prices up um, so that creditors can be uh, repaid. Well, so you just said something there, uh, Robert, augment the power of the government. 
Okay. Right. So this is something that, you know, um, maybe it's, it's more difficult to think about, like, how exactly does that happen? You know, these kinds of systems, right? Like the NRA, or even like what happened uh, throughout COVID with the emergency powers and things like that. How does that augment the power? Like, why? Why? What's, what's the process look like? The process is to create economic uh, incentives uh, so that um, people um, want to follow the government's dictates and then punishing them if they don't. Um, and uh, the, these dictates often are nonsensical, right? right? Like punishing people because they're offering lower prices during a depression, right? So then for me, uh, that's kind of what I wanted to get to then. So the point of all of that was kind of power for the sake of power itself. It wasn't even necessarily to expand the government by having more revenue. Um, it was really like for the sake of being able to have power over individuals' choices. Like that was kind of how that mechanism played out. Right. And so ostensibly, you know, this was going to help the economy. It was going to reduce unemployment and it would help FDR get reelected in 1936. Um, and, and it would set a precedent because then the government could say, hey, it worked. So why don't we expand it? And then they get even more, get even more power. So it was for the greater good. It was like, you know, whatever the ends are, like all of the all of the means justify those ends. And the ends yeah. are a better society, economic recovery. And, you know, what that actually means behind all of that is that we get more power to rule right. over you and make the right choices for you. Now, it didn't work. <laughs> uh, the economy began to improve markedly after it hit bottom in March of 1933 when FDR came on. And uh, partly that was because the money supply came back and inflation expectations were, were higher. So the economy kind of really boomed from March until like August or September of 1933. But then the NRA code started to kick in, uh, especially with the, the high wage policy and all of the time and effort that was going into making these codes, which were very detailed in some, some cases, just remarkable attempt at central planning. Um, so the economy turned downward. And uh, so it, it didn't help uh, in the end. And uh, a lot of people were happy when the Supreme Court put the bullet in its head, uh, because that gave them, you know, an excuse to end this, this awful thing. Uh, it would be like if the Supreme Court uh, recently, like if it had, like right after the Great Barrington Declaration said, hey, you know, these lockdowns are unconstitutional, right? Then we could just end it yeah. all without going through that long, drawn-out process of, you know, letting things just kind of uh, uh, kind of end slowly over years. Um, yes. Yes, yeah. I see. So let's um, move maybe to FDR that. did not like it. And he didn't, he didn't like whatever – FDR didn't like it, so he tried to pack the court. Uh, he tried to put a bunch more justices on, and uh, that didn't work um, politically. It was just it was just too far. Uh, what dissent there was, it pointed out to people that he was acting like a tyrant, uh, that we were becoming a dictatorship, and especially would if he could appoint a majority on the U.S. Supreme Court, essentially, right? Um, that would really collapse. Um, the separation of, of powers uh, in in the U.S. yet yet further. So it was put down, but the Supreme Court was um, uh, you know kind of chastened by the whole thing, and and their behaviors did. Uh, two justices in particular did change after the court pack attempt, and then just nature took over, and these old conservative judges started retiring and dying, and were replaced by like clan members like the the who I mentioned earlier Hugo uh you know Hugo Black Wow that's incredible so let's yeah. look at we have um a couple of more points here um so to talk about you know these two great resets so we have the maintenance of invisible enemies is next so what did that look like then and now 
Well, now it's uh, COVID, right? Is this kind of invisible enemy uh, and climate change, global climate mm -hmm. change, right? Um, back then it was unemployment was the great, the great unsafe. Un, un now it's, it's not that it didn't exist. It's that uh, the causes of it um, were quite clear to many people and it could have been, it could have been solved, but... Um, as Garrett Garrett once said, uh, the New Deal fed off from misery. So mm. I wouldn't go so far as to say that FDR deliberately kept unemployment high, but it did allow him to keep the crisis environment going, which, uh, you know, uh, mm. gave him cover for things like presenting huge bills to Congress people in Congress didn't even read. They just passed because it's an emergency. That should sound pretty familiar. Yeah, it sounds familiar, right? It sounds familiar. So, you know, uh, it doesn't sound so far off that that might be the case, right? That that was kind of, at the very least, an advantage. Right. So, again, all he had to do was reflate uh, or even uh, allow um, real wages to fall. But both Hoover and FDR put policies in place to keep real wages high. So if something's costly, right, if it's pricey, people demand less of it. Mm -hmm. And that's why there's unemployment. What would have happened if uh, wages were allowed to follow the market would be that real wages would have fallen until it was worth it for businesses to rehire people. Right, right. Boatloads of econometric uh, evidence on that. Um, it's possible because, uh, you know, FDR, like the current administration, doesn't seem to be real solid on economic uh, uh, concepts, you know, um, partly because, um, you know, they're unconstrained thinkers and, and Thomas Sowell's, uh, you know, um, uh, dichotomy between constrained thinkers who sort of follow reality and the actual science and then unconstrained thinkers who think that they can just uh, mandate their will uh, and it's going to happen. Um, yeah. Even, even with, co uh, you know, complex uh, uh, phenomenon. So uh, number eight, we're moving towards physical war now, kinetic war, as they say it, uh, as they call it these days. Um, it, and the government won't want to do this to get what Bob Higgs called the ratchet effect. Wars in U.S. history have been a time period where the federal government has gotten much, much bigger and more powerful. And then after the war, its powers and, and revenue are, are decreased, but it never goes back to the same starting level. It's always at a higher level than before the war. So wars help the U.S. the U.S. federal government. And that explains the Ukraine aid. Uh, the sanctions against Russia, right? Like we're trying to start a fight deliberately um, with, with Russia. Uh, the trade restrictions against the Chinese uh, look very much like uh, the aid that we were giving to Britain in the Second World War and the sanctions that we put against Japan. Hmm. Japan was the big enemy, right, in the, in the Far East in, in the 1930s. And uh, we kept ratcheting up the uh, the sanctions against them to the point that uh, some some people claim that Japan basically had to fight us uh, because we were doing everything possible to stop the flow of essential raw materials to to Japan before the before the war. Um, and so, you know, by their military doctrine, it, it was go big or go home, and that's why they attacked uh, attacked Pearl Harbor. Uh, so the Chinese have a similar sort of sort of response, where the U.S. is not somebody you want to get into a protracted uh, conflict with. You you know you need to take them out right at the right at right, who knows what that what that would look like. Um, right. But in any event, it would create a crisis uh, where the government, the federal government, could uh, could augment uh, its its powers and do things like increase taxes, uh, both the rate. And the collection effort, which is number nine on, on my list. 
So we know that there are calls, you know, like to to let the the Trump era um, tax uh, rates to expire, uh, and the the doubling of the um, the standard deduction. Um, we know that there are increased collection efforts with the hiring of eighty seven thousand new yes. IRS uh, agents, uh, and there's talk about new taxes. Uh, so they're talking about this unrealized capital gains tax on billionaires would never affect the common man, right? But on billionaires, um, that, you know, like Phil Magnus has argued as correctly as unconstitutional, clearly, but, um, uh, you know, maybe they'll try to implement it anyway, or maybe they'll try to get uh, a constitutional amendment just like they did for the income tax. Well, back in the 1930s, uh, tax increases started with Hoover, right? During a depression, they're increasing tax rates and they're increasing tax um, uh, collection uh, efforts. And uh, uh, FDR, you know, picked up picked up the ball right where um, Hoover dropped it. Uh, they both claimed that they wanted to run uh, a balanced budget. They were not Keynesians. Uh, sometimes people are under that misapprehension, especially with FDR. They ran deficits sometimes just because uh, the economy is doing so poorly that, that tax receipts are, are low. Uh, but they were increasing tax uh, tax rates. And then in 1936, um, FDR does implement a new tax. It was an undistributed corporate profits tax. And the idea was we're going to force companies to invest a new physical plant. Uh, they're not doing it on their own. So if they don't do it, we're going to take that money from them and then we'll use it to fuel the, the relief programs of, of, the, of the New Deal. Right, right. And then we have finally the last one, which is misuse of congressional hearings to influence policy and public opinion. So right. what does that look like? Well, today it looks like the, the J6 hearings, right, which were just this sort of propaganda fiasco so, 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 sort of thing. Uh, and, I, and, and then uh, back then, um, the most infamous hearing like that was the PCORA hearings in 1932, a Senate Banking Commission that uh, sort of dug up every little bit of dirt on Wall Street that it that it could, uh, and use it to pin blame for the Great Depression on Wall Street and the stock market crash. And it was so effective that even to this day in this book, I have to go to great lengths to explain to people that the recession started before the stock market crash, months before. And yes. that if... Hoover hadn't have passed the Smoot-Hawley uh, tariff, if he hadn't have um, passed uh, high-wage policies, uh, if the Federal Reserve had acted as a lender of last resort, or at least allowed the traditional lenders of last resort to, to, to act, uh, if um, the Federal Reserve hadn't sterilized gold uh, inflows, uh, in other words, if it allowed the the, the money supply to uh, to increase uh, again, uh, then we wouldn't have had the Great Depression. We would have had yeah. a recession that would have ended uh, maybe late 1930, maybe first or second quarter of 1931, uh, but would just be another of the long litany of uh, of recessions in U.S. history. But it didn't. I want to just back up and look at this all big picture because, I mean, I think that this is great. And it's amazing how you've been able to pull out these 10 points and to identify that we see what looks like these two great resets that have happened, which the first one changed the infrastructure of America and changed the role of the state and individual forevermore. And now it looks like that kind of... Uh, authority will be even more increased, right? The state authority um, at, at an even more um, intense level for people. But what's what I find is different about this um, uh, presentation of the Great Reset 
in America is that it's very covert, right? And Garrett Garrett pointed that out in his piece, The Revolution Was, which you referred to earlier, right? So it's not necessarily like what you see in Sri Lanka, where they apply all of the SDGs and all of the ESG and, you know, all of these nice anachronisms and then end up basically destroying their country and burning it down to the ground, essentially. It's a more kind of uh, subtle, covert um, coup, as Garrett referred to, that happens via executive order and and the signing of a pen and all of these kinds of things, which you mentioned these 10 points here. Yeah, um, that's that's an interesting point. I would have to think on that uh, on that some more. And I I, I thank you for that thought uh, provoking provoking question. Um, of course, you know there are more than ten uh, parallels. Uh, th- those were the ten that happened to strike me the most when I wrote that that slide. Uh, there's probably a good score of them. Uh, that are just as uh, as ju- ju- just as solid, just as just as clear. Um, the one one you know kind of major difference is that this current Great Reset seems to be based more on trying to form or give more power to uh, a supranational group. Uh, so so that's one you know possible difference though uh you know mostly what we've what we've seen is uh, stuff that's happening at the US you know net federal policy uh level uh rather than the supra supra um national stuff but just like the new deal was influenced by the progressives who were influenced by uh european university studies uh, you know, we don't know where all of these uh, policies are, are coming from. And some right. of our politicians have been, what do they call World Economic Forum thought leaders or something in the yeah. past? Yes, you know, like, young leaders, I believe. Right, right, right. Uh, and in yeah, Canada, and right, um, both um, uh, the prime minister and the, the vice prime minister have both been. Yes, Christian Freeland him. and Justin Trudeau, right? That's right. So. Um, yeah, I think that that's that's a good point. It's kind of like how uh, during the New Deal you had people who were uh, associates of Mussolini who were in the federal government, you know, who were kind of the um, how can I say the uh, confidants of FDR, right? Uh, correct. Yeah. Um, yes. Like um, Hugh, Hugh Johnson, who was head of the um, uh, Civilian Conservation Corps. Um, was uh, was was a big fan of Mussolini, uh, and of course right. there were communists involved in in the uh, in the FDR administration uh, as well. That's why. So in the in the book, I don't call them communists or socialists or Nazis or fascists. Um, I just call them collectivists because these are all forms of collectivism uh, with um, you know authoritarian top down. Uh, power structures and, and, and aspirations for more, for more power. Right. You know what, Robert, that's exactly the word that I was thinking. And that's um, what kind of ties in with what we were talking about in the beginning of the discussion. And Hayek in his book, The Road to Serfdom, spoke about that when he was talking about those ideas that were spreading in German academia, right, was that they were ideas that, uh, you know, the collectivists basically had a vision for the world, which was very different from individualism, which meant that the individual was supreme. And it just looks like we're seeing this tendency to kind of fall back into that kind of way of looking at things, right? And so that, um, I I recall reading um, a quote from Hannah Arendt uh, in her book, Eichmann in Jerusalem, where she talks about how evil can spread like a fungus and touch all the corners of the earth, you know, if it's kind of unfettered. And it looks like that is another big parallel that you can draw between what happened back then and what's going on now, where it's like these ideas become contagious. Once you have this kind of uh, ascendant collectivism, uh, it seems to kind of spread to other places in in the world. Yeah, and I do like to modify it. Uh, I'd have to think about ascended. I often I'll say authoritarian collectivism because uh, hmm. I, I personally am not opposed to uh, voluntaristic collectivism. Uh, so, like uh, the Amish, uh, for example, um, or the the Hutterites. 
they live together and, and they are kibbutzim in, in Israel. Uh, I think that's fine. If individuals say, I want to be part of this group, uh, and we're going to create these rules within uh, within this group to to live by, and, and and they're all there voluntarily. I have no problem with that. Um, the the problem, and uh, there, there's another. Well, why can I never think of jokes properly when I'm, when I'm doing these things? <laughs> I, I I think the joke goes. I have uh, no problem with you being a communist. The problem arises when you want me to become a communist. Yes, essentially, essentially, that's, that's what it is. Yeah. Right, right. And it's like the scalability, right? It's if you take that kind of principle of having, you know, or communitarianism could be another uh, word to describe what you're, what you're describing there in those small communities, right? But when you take um, something to scale and you apply it to nation states and then you apply it across uh, the globe, well, that can be a really, really dangerous force. So, um, I, yeah, I... I would like to thank you for your time and uh, I look forward to reading your book. I think it's coming out. It's not finished yet. So let's not announce to people when it's coming out, but um, <laughs> are there, are there any kind of last thoughts that you would like to share, Robert? No, except uh, it's, it's always great to be with Kate and um, <laughs> <laughs> it's great to have you too. To, look forward to doing this uh, again sometime. Yes, absolutely. And if you guys want to follow Robert, you can follow him on Twitter. Uh, you can go read his work on AIR.org. And I want to thank everybody who listened today. And um, please give us some feedback on this discussion and let us know what you think in the comments below. Uh -huh.